I, I guess one of the first things I actually want to talk about, it's not released here yet. It's uh, The Last of Us TV show. Okay, That's yeah. going to be dropping on Sky Atlantic over here, HBO Max. Um, it's not out screening tonight at, I believe, 9pm. It's about 5 o'clock when we are recording this. Um, really looking forward to watching it. Before I talk about it, I'll briefly go through the computer game. First of all, the computer game, I loved it. I don't know mm-hmm. if you played it or if you loved it, but probably one of the best games I've played in the past 15 years. I felt that the gameplay on The Last of Us, the gameplay itself wasn't as strong as the story. It seemed like the experience of watching the story with the characters was better than the actual gameplay. So from a storytelling standpoint, it was revolutionary. But from a gameplay standpoint, I didn't think it stood out too much. It was still very good, though. Um, Never played The Last of Us Part 2, despite being suggested it by numerous people. But the first Last of Us game, maybe the first game since maybe Metal Gear Solid, where I was keen to watch the cutscenes, as I was not so annoyed that the gameplay was being cut off for them. I was looking forward to watching them. But... They've adapted this into a TV series, which we, of course, have not yet watched at the time of recording. An HBO series helmed by Craig Mazin, who made Chernobyl. So you know that with HBO and this guy, they've at least got the full resources and beyond capable storytellers overseeing the project to make the huge physical and emotional scale of the game adapted the way that it deserves. The creators themselves... They've said that they don't intend on telling stories that aren't in the game, which is... That's probably one of the long-standing issues with games that have been adapted into films. Is it doesn't follow the story, and it just takes the characters and does its own thing, and as a result, it's usually a disaster. So I, I do believe them to some degree. There's going to be some deviations. I mean, that that's inevitable, but we're, we're going off the basis that the writers have some sort of faith in the source material. So So currently, the stacks are completely in the show's favour. It's a great story with great characters. I'd say the story of The Last of Us is accessible to people that aren't familiar with the games, and hopefully it'll also be accessible to the faithful gamers that are looking forward to the adaptation. The challenge, however, is going to come down to the lead actors, uh, Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal, who they of course play Joel and uh, Ellie. They're going to have to have their working boots on to make sure that they have the on-screen chemistry that the characters deserve. I mean, as we know, Pedro Pascal has been more than capable of holding his own as a lead thanks to The Mandalorian, and he was very good in Game of Thrones, as was Bella Ramsey. But it's a huge project, and that's a lot of weight on the shoulders of essentially a 19-year-old girl. You got any thoughts about uh, the TV series, just from what we know thus far? Well, I mean, being honest, I haven't really been looking at all the information coming out about the show. I know of it. I've seen the trailers. It looks great. I played the games. I really enjoyed them. Um, there's quite a lot of things about the game play, especially in the second one, that I really enjoyed. Um, like I, I actually began playing the game, really not liking the second character that was that was brought in, uh, Abby. I think her name was, and um, really not liking her. And you you play between the two different characters, Abby and Ellie. And as the game progressed, I found myself liking Abby more than Ellie. And it was just an interesting way my opinion changed on the actual uh, main characters. You've played the first game, you've come through the story with Ellie and Joel, then you've got the new game, you're still playing Ellie, 
but I just found myself drawn to the story of Abby more. Um, so it would be interesting to see if they're going to stick with the canon of the current content, because there's been a few expansion games where they've obviously um, played with other characters within the universe with Ellie and um, her her character there, which admittedly I actually never played. I've only ever played the main the main games, but. You said you haven't played the second game, but again, it's been out for long enough. So, spoiler alert: Joel dies early on in the first in the in the second game. So, it'll be interesting to see if or when they kill off Pedro Pascal's Joel, or whether they change that entirely to prolong his character in the game in the film uh, TV series, because he does die very early on in in the second game, and then the story becomes about Ellie and Abby. So. And Pedro Pascal is busy, he's doing The Mandalorian and other things, so it must be hard to commit to doing multiple TV shows and films at the same time. So I'm interested to see what they do with that, because it was, at the time when Joel was killed, for me, quite a, tra a traumatic moment, because it's a character you've played for the whole first game and you liked and you wanted to continue seeing that relationship develop, um, and suddenly it was gone. <laughs> so I could imagine they got a fair amount of backlash when the game first came out because pe people were attached to Joel, people loved Joel and if Pedro Pascal is really able to capture the hearts of the general public uh, with his personification of the character you might have another Ned Stark on your hands where the audience are really shocked at such a familiar face going so early uh, Well I do believe there was some backlash a lot of people didn't like the character of Abby and they were really annoyed that Joel was killed so early on in the in the game, but I believe that was also a deliberate point. Your you know, the the Joel character created dying created the um, justification for Ellie to go after Abby. Um, Abby story unfolds as the game progresses. It turns out that Abby's father was one of the doctors that Joel kills in the first game when they've got Ellie in the medical bay, um, you know, at the hospital. So, you know, she went after the killer of her dad and killed him. And Ellie's going after the killer of essentially her dad being Joel, and it's Abby. So it's it's interesting that the whole it's. I suppose though, when you put it like that, very thinly, it's the same plot, <laughs> just rehashed. Well, back to the show. Um, the recent reviews that have come out because uh, there there will be press screens of the first episode. They've talked about how Pedro Pascal actually is very good at capturing the uh, the the hum the human side of Joel, but also the ruthless side, yeah. saying that Pedro Pascal manages to capture the body language of the character of Joel with some shots framed as if you're playing as the character in the game. Mm -hmm. And they say from the back, the way that he moves, it's, it's as if it's not Pedro Pascal. It is the Joel that people are familiar with thanks to their playing of the game. And all the reviews have been gleaming thus far. Some have called it the, the greatest game adaptation of all time, and that's just through the first episode. It's going to be a nine-episode series. You and I are both keen to watch the first episode. Maybe next time we can talk about what we thought about mm -hmm. it, or maybe even the first two episodes if the next recording comes at the time that both of them are out. But it might be a show to follow. I think it will be a show to follow. From what I've seen of the trailers, anyway, it looks really good. And I didn't have any problem with, you know, Pedro Pascal being cast as Joel. I thought that was a good casting option. Um, I saw Rotten Tomatoes gave it 100%. So really looking forward to actually uh, getting to see the first episode and then take it from there with regards to the rest of the show. But I'm the kind of guy that will watch the first episode anyway 
and stick it out even if I start to not like the show because <laughs> I, I kind of start it, I want to finish it and then I can give a, a justified response by saying well I saw it all it got better by season episode two or three or it sucked the whole way through or it lost its way maybe halfway through the game uh, the, the the series but I, I think there's a lot of good material for the showrunners to take in order to make this series good and so I'm, I've got high hopes for it and you know I don't necessarily buy into every every review I ever um, see because it's very much object you know subjective to the person's personal tastes, but of course. I do think it's a show that I would like anyway. I like my I like post apocalyptic dark stuff. I like and the themes within the Last of Us anyway is stuff that I do tend to like you know, gravitate towards. So that being said, I'm really looking forward to getting to see the first episode, and uh, I'm sure it's one I will follow for the duration of the show. Oh, well, likewise, they've got great source material behind them and I have full faith in uh, the creator of Chernobyl bringing the story of The Last of Us to life. Chernobyl was fantastic. Um, it's just going to come down to whether or not they can remain faithful to the source material because with source material as good as The Last of Us, sticking to it with that kind of cast, that kind of production, you're in with a hit. One of the biggest talking points prior to the ceremony was going to be the absence of Brendan Fraser, who is on the verge of having one of the most heartwarming comeback stories since Mickey Rourke or Robert Downey Jr. Um, he announced in advance that he wasn't going to be attending due to having a strained relationship with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Uh, I don't want to get into the details too deep, but for those that don't know, the story's been told over and over again that Brendan Fraser, during the Me Too movement, spoke out against Philip Burke. Philip Burke, who I'd never heard of, he's a long-time member and ex-president of the HFPA. He was making the claim that he was sexually assaulted by Burke back in 2003. He'd later come out and say that due to this, uh, and as he was speaking up against it, that he was potentially blacklisted in Hollywood. Uh, is now going through a huge surge in popularity thanks to being cast in Darren Aronofsky's uh, lead role in The Whale, which I've not seen yet. But we'll get to The Whale in a moment. The point stands, he announced he wasn't going to be there in advance and he was saying exactly why, so that there would be no rumours as to why he didn't show up when he was nominated. Um, I can't confirm or debunk any claims, of course, but I'll say this. Brendan Fraser seems like one of the most genuine sweetest wouldn't harm a fly actors out there he attends every convention that he has access to fan screens of his movies george of the jungle bedazzled the mummy it doesn't matter if you're seeing him on late night talk shows press conferences or even zoom calls with his fans uh, but he always comes across as a guy that's like truly happy to be there like a, a guy who knows how lucky he is never appears what like he's not a tom hanks he never appears like a, a confident star he seems truly humble and gracious to be given the opportunity to talk to people that are interested in who he is but with all those positives there there comes a sort of vulnerability and innocence so you can see with a person like that if he was to be speaking out against somebody in a position of power how easy it would be for them to trample over him and start damaging his career without much pushback. But this is apparently what happened. Um, I guess we'll never know for sure, but the fact that he had the integrity to stand behind his claim and boycott the Golden Globes despite being nominated for a Best Lead Actor, uh, that's pretty admirable. 
and the fact that he doesn't seem to display any negativity at all towards his friends and co-stars who did attend is even more so. Like he knows it's his fight, um, and he's happy to stand there alone. Did you watch the Golden Globes? No, nah, I didn't. I, I didn't actually see it. It was uh, quite busy that day, and I didn't want to stay up to watch it, so I just went to bed. But I caught the results the next day. Um, some interesting results. Um, it's quite happy to see the Banshee and Ashir win a few awards. I haven't seen that film yet. I'm going. I want to watch it. So Colin Farrell won in there. Um, nice to see Steven Steven Spielberg winning a few things again with uh, the Fablemans. Um, House of Dragon won an award. Um, I think. Eddie Murphy won the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Cecil B. DeMille Award. Yeah. yeah. So that was quite funny because he you know, did a wee acceptance speech where he had a wee pop at Will Smith and slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. Um, but that's a funny one though because I've always liked Eddie Murphy as a comedian. And at one point he was everywhere then he just seemed to vanish. Um, but I remember watching his... He, he did. Yeah. But he had these... Uh, did you ever see Raw? The, the stand-up show he did? Oh, uh, no... I have heard of it. Comes out in a big pink, like leather, <laughs> like suit. Purple, actually. It's actually quite good, but it basically it's quite funny watching a lot of comedians like from like Eddie Murphy, and you can clearly see Richard Pryor in all of them. Um, but it was just very interesting to see a lot of these young comedians at the, at the time, I suppose. And you could clearly see Richard Pryor had been a big influence on them. So it was a uh, and that comedy, you know, passed on down to the next comedian and so on and so forth. And um, it's really just interesting to watch how youth is shaped by the guy, people that come before it, um, and how the, and how comedy was <laughs> so different back then. Because you could attack almost anything, and people understood it was comedy, and they could have a laugh from it. Whereas I think now, unless you're Ricky Gervais or someone that just doesn't care, you you kind of have to be careful of what you say now, for fear of being attacked or cancelled or something coming to bite back to bite you ten years after you said it. See, there's a way around that. And South Park had the right idea. You you can't, if you're going to be offensive, if you're going to have a go, you can't tiptoe around the idea of having a go. You've got to commit to having a go at something and expand that to having a go at everything. If you're one of those comedians or filmmakers or writers that if you're kind of teetering on the edge of I don't really want to be making this joke, this offensive joke, but I'm going to put it in there anyway. Those that want to be offended and those that are looking for a reason to attack your work, they will attack that work because I think it's almost like they can tell that the creator will react or apologize. I get what you're saying because I, you know, I think when you preface something by saying, look, we're going to be offensive here. If you're easily offended, then maybe you your best to leave now or switch off. And I think that gives them a safety net that when you do go into the, the comedy aspect of it and someone gets offended, you can say, well, look, you were told we're going to be offensive here. So if you don't like what we're saying, you probably shouldn't be here. Um, it gives you a wee bit of a, a, a get out of jail free card, if you like. But there's still somebody will always find something to attack. Um, and before you know it, everybody's turned on you because you've you said one thing out of line, even though you maybe didn't mean it in... Um, either the way it was being interpreted or it was meant as a pure joke and you just I think Joe Rogan said it, everything has to be available to make fun of or you can't make fun of anything I agree I agree 110%
I don't know. I, I'm all for a bit of comedy. If I went to a comedy show and the guy was offensive, um, I wouldn't be too bothered about it because I went to a comedy show knowing fine well that it could be offensive and it's comedy. It's not meant to hurt anyone, really. Um, and if you're somebody that's e easily offended, you probably shouldn't be going to these types of shows. No, I, I'd agree with that. I don't mind um, going to a comedy show and somebody's being offensive. What I don't like is when somebody thinks that just being offensive is the funny part. Yeah, I think it's okay for you to be offensive, but the joke still has to be somewhat intelligent. It's still got to be clever. You can't just say... The punchline can't be that it's offensive. Have you seen the trailer for The Whale? Both of them. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure I've seen them both, actually, and it's a film I'm really keen to see. Um, but again, it's another one I wasn't... wasn't watching all the news that was coming out about stuff. I was aware of Brendan Fraser had uh, decided he wasn't going to go because he indicated that he'd be a hypocrite to do so. Um, but interestingly, and it's totally off topic, you're saying Frasier, and I'm saying Fraser. I read an interview he did, and he, he corrected everybody that says his name wrong, and apparently it's simply just Fraser, not Frasier. So there you Guilty go. Guilty is charged. <laughs> but to your point, no. Um, I haven't seen the film yet. I have seen the trailers, and it is one that I'm looking forward to actually watching properly. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's up there with one of the ones that I really want to see. It's not out here in the UK and I mean, I'm not going to watch a pirate copy or anything. Those that have uh, seen it thus far are making mention of like the entire audience being in like tears come the end. So it feels like something that um, how powerful a film it is would be experienced better being in a group environment in the cinema. Um, kind of like the Joker that I, I saw in the cinema but witnessing the stunned silences from the audience, it, it made you more aware of just how impactful it was. It didn't matter how it was affecting you. I could see that the whole audience was affected. And that's not easy to do, at, at least not um, not to that degree. But The Whale, reviews thus far, kind of surprisingly, th they've all praised Brendan Fraser for being really, really good in the film. Like, Oscar worthy but it seems a little bit lukewarm on the film itself like it's almost like the entire basis uh, the entire marketing strategy for the whale thus far is all hung on one performance being Brendan Fraser's and I'm fully expecting to go and see the film not for the story but I'm, I'm going to be watching a one-man performance so how do you do that I mean neither of us have had to properly market a film but if your entire film is hanging on a great performance from the lead, if they don't deliver, what do you do with it? Well, I mean, I'm sure there's been a lot of cases in the past where they've brought in a big name thinking it's going to be all they need to do to sell a movie and the film's fallen short. Um, can't think of any examples. Well, Waterworld, Kevin Costner, big movie, big name, completely failed. Um, and I hadn't seen that Kevin Costner just kind of vanished from the film world for years and it suddenly reappeared in some wee movies here and there and now he's back on Yellowstone and he's just why well, he, he himself won for best actor at the Golden Globes and oh really you know for uh, an ongoing TV series so there you go there's a perfect example of another guy that you know probably could have should have had a film that was successful by all accounts and it just massively flopped um Darren Aronofsky is not an, you know not an unknown name and Brendan Fraser's uh, comeback's been quite well documented for the last few months. He's been coming, you know, he's everywhere. People are talking about him. He's getting standing ovations. So I think you've got a lot of 
eyes on the project simply from the fact that it's Brendan Fraser's return to the you know the, you know, the silver screen. Um, and it's Darren Aronofsky that's putting together a project. Now, if you've seen seen things like Black Swan and uh, The Wrestler, you know you know what you're, you're going to get with Darren Aronofsky, and I think all those things play well to the film's marketing in and of itself. Is simply just the fact that Brendan Fraser's in it and being talked about it. currently. He's, he's a trending topic, isn't he? So everybody's eyes are on the film, and they all want to probably see it for that reason. Yeah, I'm a little bit divided on Aronofsky. I do like the majority of his work. You've got Requiem for a Dream. You've got The Wrestler, Black Swan, as you said. But you do also have Noah. You do also have Mother. And the fact that so much emphasis has been put on the performance and not the film as a whole kind of reminds you, as great as Brendan Fraser might be in the film, it's not all in his hands. It's ideally... Not ideally, it's... At the end of the day, it's in Darren Aronofsky's hands. So I think people are getting so sucked into the idea of seeing the film because they want to support Brendan, but they might be a little disappointed at the film, given that um, the story might not be up to scratch with the performance given by Fraser. A lot to hang on one person if the overall film itself isn't very good. There's plenty of things you can watch out there that you can say the film wasn't great, but he actually had a great performance or she had a great performance. So, of course. you know, I'll reserve judgment until I see it. But from a technical aspect, I actually really like what they're doing with the film thus far. Uh, they've, they've filmed it in a smaller aspect ratio to create that feeling of isolation that the character is experiencing, be, li living alone in that apartment. So they've got the 4-3 aspect ratio. The fat suit that they've given Brendan Fraser it looks amazing. I know that they've built a suit that was filled with... Uh, I think Beans, uh, ideally they wanted to replicate the actual weight to help his performance so that he actually had to trudge around the apartment. He actually would have greater difficulty lifting his arms. In that regard, I think the film looks really well shot. I like those ideas. I personally like the fact that it all takes place in one location of been a big fan of films like 12 Angry Men and the TV series Inside Number 9 that utilises that one location shoot, which might turn some people off. Because if you're going to the cinema, sometimes you're expecting, or often you're expecting a huge scale. So to, to be stuck in that auditorium with one character in one room isn't something for everyone. It is something for me. I'm, I'm very much a fan of that format. Don't know about you. Well, to your point, though, I think it's a. I, I like the format. I think if it's done well, again, though, you, you're relying on a, on a performance from a, a name. Look at uh, Locke with Tom Hardy. It's just a guy driving in his car from work to the hospital, and then all the things that happen in conversation between the two locations. Now, you, you read that and you think, that can't be a particularly great film, but you watch it, and actually, it does suck you in for the entire duration of the car drive. You watch it, and you're, you're, it's a really good performance from Tom Hardy. And then there's others, like, as you said, inside number nine. And I remember specifically, a whole episode takes place inside of a wardrobe. Like, but they make it work. And the whole time you're watching it, you don't feel like you want to turn it off. You you, you want to see where this is going. So you watch the whole thing and it all takes place inside of a wardrobe. You know, so I think the writing and the performances have to be really good in order for all that stuff to play it really well. Um, But I don't agree necessarily that the four by three creates a sense of loneliness. Because what you're doing there is making everything tighter and smaller and 
more um, constricted, which is for me more more a sense of uh, you know stress piling up and things trapping and you feel stuck and that you're stuck in this little box that you can't quite get out of. Maybe that's what they're going for, but I would have probably thought if you want to show someone in isolation, you would have gone with the sixteen by nine. Maybe even going like you know fully anamorphic and going you know and use wide lenses and showing this guy in his space very much alone, very much on his own, you know surrounded by all these things but no one to share them with. So, we've both been working in different areas of the film industry. Me more as a hobbyist or an enthusiast. I think you've tried to be a a more professional. Um, a more professional tool in the film industry. So, how how did it all start? When did you start making films? I mean, I guess it started uh, in high school. It's when I really got my hands on a video camera. But prior to that, I was doing photography, and I think even as a kid, I used to take my little my toy toys that I had, and I'd put together essentially a storyboard of them of some kind of action scene so I had a dinosaur chasing a G.I. Joe and then the guy would get in his car and the car would crash and then you know and I've got a wee photo album from when I was probably about 10 years old and it's basically a, a storyboard of these things playing out and then as I got a bit older I started taking photographs and um, and then in high school they finally offered us a, a media studies course and one of the parts of the course was to make a film so I immediately took the course and got really excited about the idea of getting to shoot a film uh, and you know we did that and you know it, probably I would love to see it now just purely of interest but I, I can imagine it was probably absolutely terrible but I knew at that moment that this is what I wanted to do with my life I wanted to make films I wanted to tell visual stories and uh, you know I've tried to pursue that since um, you know via through college and university and working in the, in the industry and you know as a runner as a camera assistant um shooting films as a DOP, directed a few things. I've never really broken out of the independent side of things. I've always done lower budget stuff, um, short films mainly. And I just keep, you know, hoping that one of these days I'm going to get to shoot a feature film and, you know, before I know it will be in Hollywood making big movies. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, hating on life. I'm, I enjoy the, the stuff I get to do and, so, I mean, it, it could just take that one film to uh, allow you to finally break out and get the, the chance to make films professionally and call that your career. Um, so, yeah. What about yourself? How long have you been doing it for? Uh, probably since about 2010, 2011, but there's been a lot of stop and start. S similar to you, probably back when I was 12 or 13, I was making stuff with friends just using a house security camera because back then getting a digital camera wasn't exactly cheap and we weren't exactly wealthy. So you had to use anything that would record video or audio that you could get your hands on. So we had one of those really poor, probably 240p cameras that you would put in the window that would look down at your parked car. But it had a really long cable. So we would use that as a camera and record direct to VHS. The problem was there was no way to linear edit VHS, not without some sort of investment. So you'd have to line up where you want the cut and there would be a couple second delay. Then you'd, 
if you were having a conversation back and forth between two characters, you were having to literally record every cut as its own take. If if that makes sense, if you know what I'm meaning. So you'd have to film line, stop, line it up, line, and keep going back and forth so that when you watch it back, it looked like an actual, oh my God, speaking about it right now, it sounds so shit, but that's what we had to do. When you mentioned that uh, you got a camera, so of course, obviously we have cameras, we're filmmakers, but back then, uh, was it still digital or were you back on mini DVs or uh, film reel? Um, at school, it was a, a big Sony thing recorded onto VHS. I can't remember which camera it was, but we put the VHS tape in and off we'd go. Um, I remember convincing my mum and dad to help buy me a camera at the time. And they, we went to Curry's and we bought a wee, uh, it was a Hi8 Sony camcorder. And that was my camera for many years until finally I went to college. Um, I bought a camera before I really understood how to use it because no one really at school or at college even, and even at uni, we didn't do practical learning. They weren't taking us away and teaching us about apertures and shutter speeds and ISOs and, um, you know, we had ND filters built into the camera, for example. I didn't even know what an ND filter was really at the time. And we were shooting one of my projects up in uh, Aberdeen. Uh, it's like a western town called Tranquility Town. It was like a reenactment groups um, built a wee western village. And I was standing inside one of the rooms and it was quite dark so I had to open up the aperture all the way and I had an ND filter on which was dealing with some of the sunlight coming in the window and I remember looking at it thinking this is a really nice looking image it looks really filmic like why does the rest of the film not look like that it just looked like video and it's annoying now when I look back on that because I, I can remember saying to myself why does this look so good whereas the rest of this stuff looks crap and then realising now of course that was because I was using the aperture properly and using an ND to help you know, deal with the over the light coming in from the window and so on. And it's really frustrating to realise that I had my hand on what could have been a really great camera that could have made some really nice content back then on, you know, and, and just never understood how to use the tools. And it wasn't really until graduating university and going out and working in the industry as a camera assistant and getting, buying a, a DSLR, which was kind of becoming all the range at the time. They were using the 5D on house and other projects like that. So... I got. I went and got myself um, a five D, and uh, for, sorry, it was a fifty D. In fact, I had and um, shooting content there, and actually really learning how to properly use aperture and all the various things that a camera has. Because prior to that, when I, I was saying I was doing photography, I was a kid and I was using mostly all the automatic functions it would give me. I didn't do anything manually, and even through university and college. I have to admit, I didn't learn a lot about practical filmmaking. It was more three D based and. Um, I sometimes wonder if it had been better at the time just really trying to find an apprenticeship or going into just camera systems straight off the bat. But the opportunities weren't there either at the time for people like like myself who wanted to do films and television. There's a lot more going on now. Um, the industry's much bigger and better now than it was when I was at college in 2002. So you're going back quite a while now and it's just uh, some ways I feel like I've been trapped in limbo I've, I've kind of started trying to do this at the wrong time but also we're now at a time when everybody's got a, a camera in their pocket as so I try to be a cinematographer in 2023 is also really difficult because people are off shooting films on their phones nowadays and it's not quite got the same demand and mystique that it had once upon a time it's funny as well you talk about 
guys having cameras. He hears stories about all these guys, oh, my dad had a 60mm camera, and it's like, I just can't imagine people having film cameras just sitting around the house and, you know, these guys have access to these things. Because I didn't have access to anything like that, not really. Again, same boat as yourself. Weren't a wealthy family. Mum and dad couldn't, they did what they could, but they weren't in a position to go off and buy me loads of equipment, left, right and centre, and a lot of it I'd have to use when I was at college and, you know, I was always looking for that next next best bit of kit to make the, the, the filming journey better, but realising now, with more experience, that you could have done, I could have done a lot of really nice stuff with the kit I had, I just didn't know how to use it. So all the gear and no idea. <laughs> Yeah, well, of course, anyone with a spare 30 grand will buy a, a red epic thinking suddenly their film's going to look great, but it won't. Yeah, it'll look better than using a £200 digital camera, but you still have to understand the tools. You absolutely have to understand the tools that you're... Um, with, with this higher tech also comes a higher learning curve. You can't just press record and then take what the camera gives you. It's... It's more expensive, it's got more functions, you've got to learn and understand those functions. So that that's one learning curve for you from the past. Um, if you were to go back in time, you would probably want to learn how to use the camera properly because as you then saw with experience, you could have gotten a really good look. Knowing what you know now, what else would you have done differently back when you first started to give you a better shot today? I think I would have probably taken me the effort to go knock on doors and visit places where there's films getting made. I might have even made the trip to London and tried to see if that would have done me any good. I, th I think I would have liked to have done more hands-on practical filmmaking and less going through the education system because really it didn't teach me a lot that, of what I wanted to know. It was more about film theory and breaking things down and how to analyse a film, which has its uses, but it wasn't teaching me practical skills that I wanted to learn. So... It's, it's tough because, you know, at the time there wasn't a lot of options in Scotland for film courses and they all seemed to be doing much the same thing. Um, I would have liked to have made better use of the time I had when I was doing stuff and, and not and tried to make films a bit more seriously. But, you know, I'm 15, 16 years old, you don't know what you're doing. You're just going out with your friends, you're playing around with the camera, you try to shoot a film. At one point we were down in a quarry trying to shoot a scene where there's a fight that happens on top of a, the top of the, the, the edge of the quarry and the guy gets yeah. thrown over the edge and we had a, you know, somebody's clothes stuffed with towels and a balloon as a head getting thrown off this it's, You know, it sounds ridiculous. We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> I've had, um, you know, armed police response teams coming to to take gun, you know, toy guns off us because we were running, someone had seen us running around with toy guns and they, they reported it and the next thing you've got guys showing up at your door taking it to you know, worry that you've running around with a gun in public and it's like, you know, silly things like that. Um, it's funny you talk about uh, not necessarily having shooting something great. Have you ever seen the the pilot for Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah. It looks terrible. From a visual perspective, it's a terribly shot um, piece of work, but it shows the skill and the talent and the jokes and the things that the guys had and off the back of that they've now got a series which is what 10 11 seasons more if not more probably um, more probably but the, more but the pilot episode if you watch that looked like something that i probably would have shot back in 2002 it didn't look great at all so again not having all the best gear in the planet isn't necessarily the be all and end all because you can still shoot something that shows what you're capable of doing on a much lower quality camera 
So it's not, it shouldn't always be about trying to go and get the best gear you can get your hands on. I would say just get whatever you can get your hands on, whether it's £10 camera or a 100 grand camera, and take the time to learn your tools. Learn, understand how they work and how they function. Don't be assuming because I've got a great camera, I'm going to shoot the, a really great film. From personal experience, that's not the case. And I've seen films shot on Reds and even Ari Alexis and various things that look awful because the guys using them didn't really understand how to use the camera as a tool, because that's all it is at the end of the day, as a tool, to, you know, help to make their film work. And um, it's interesting now, if I could go back 20 years with the knowledge I have now, I think my career would be in a very different place, but you don't know what you don't know and you only learn it when you learn it. And I think it's a, a great opportunity to go out there and make mistakes, learn and make more mistakes and learn again and continue to grow and, and evolve. Because if you don't make those mistakes, you never get the chance to, to adapt and you, you, you'll never really progress. Nobody wakes up in the morning and has every single skill they know they need to go make shoot the greatest film on the planet. There's a lot of trial and error that goes into these things. We're in a day where digital allows you to make that trial and error relatively cost-free. Because you know, people say all the time now, you have a phone, most phones these days can shoot HD at least, so you can go away and shoot a relatively decent looking project on your film, and it's all practice. You're not you're not wasting thousands of pounds on on film development and you know running out of thirty five millimeter film or sixty millimeter film, which I just can't imagine being cost effective when you're younger. Um, so we are in a day and age where you could do a lot more with a lot less, and people should be taking the opportunity to to, to learn. Camera movement, camera angles, framing is a wider shot better than a close lens. You know why? Why would you use a wide wide angle lens instead of a long lens in this scenario? What are you trying to portray in your visuals? Um, as a director, what you're trying to you know what what you're trying to get your characters to portray? It's there's a lot a lot to go into. Um, and I think you can't really do it all in a in a small section of a podcast. In all fairness, because there's a lot you could say, and there's probably people out there with more experience than me who are better placed to, to sit there and, and talk about these things. So on that note, I'll uh, <laughs> move on. You watched anything recently? I started watching the new season season two of Valhalla last night. Actually. Um, I hate the gap between shows sometimes because you don't necessarily remember the whole story and then, you know, the recaps don't really bring you right back up to speed again. So you kind of feel like if you're going to watch season two of anything after a prolonged absence from the show, you need to watch almost all of season one again. So but I haven't done that. So I'm jumping back in and I watched a couple of episodes and I was like, I don't hate it, but I kind of can't remember what happened in the first season and I can't be bothered watching that again. So I'll just persevere and see where it goes. Um, you know, weirdly enough, I started watching The Good Doctor, uh, and then found myself stuck watching that for like all you know, marathons all six seasons. So I now I've now finished watching that and waiting on the next part coming out. I've never watched it. Um, Robin, my partner, is a nurse, so we kind of try and avoid watching medical dramas when we're off work. Although we did watch the The Good Nurse. The Eddie Redmayne film. I think it was called The Good Nurse. It was the, the true story of a serial killer who was a nurse. He was injecting insulin into random um, drip bags. So people that were coming into the ICU with things that they were expected to leave the hospital after a few days after healing up and getting the treatment they needed were unexpectedly dying because 
this guy had the obsession with injecting insulin into their bags and uh, they were suffering uh, deadly hypos. It was actually a pretty good film. It was Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. You can find it on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. I think the last thing I've watched film-wise... <laughs> you know what? I started trying to watch All Quiet on the Western Front and I got about five minutes into it and I just thought I'm not in the mood for this film right now and so i plan to revisit that at some point but i haven't done it yet <laughs> you know what is a film that i've watched and i have to admit i actually enjoyed it and i've totally forgot the title it's the nick cage movie the burden of uh talent or whatever it's called pedro pascal and nicholas cage um and i actually thought it was a really good film because he's just taking the piss out of himself the entire time and if you know what nicholas cage is like you know it, there's a lot of sort of silly moments in there and there's, it's worth a watch it was i enjoyed it it was it was a bit of fun it was a film i put, I put on with no expectations i had a few laughs um and i i enjoyed it and i do say to people if you like you want to watch a film where you can see a guy who's a bit of a meme kind of just taking the piss out of himself that's one to watch oh he embraced it he embraced it completely i actually really like nicholas cage though as you say he is a little bit of a meme but when his high rank in Hollywood career started crashing. He started lending himself out to more indie films for name, I guess, name value and probably money. But if you saw Joe, for example, if you saw the film Joe or Mandy, I mean, a lot of these smaller filmmakers that haven't yet had their big break to get big name stars, Nicolas Cage is usually available. <laughs> and he's, he's going through a resurgence as well. Have you ever heard of geezer teasers? <laughs> Pretty much every Bruce Phyllis Willis film in the last 10 years is a geezer teaser. You've got all these old men running around with like guns and blowing stuff up. and Yeah, yeah. I'm very, very aware of them. And a lot of the time it's not even them. I think the idea of the geezer teasers with Bruce Willis is that his name was on the poster but he's hardly ever in it. Although he might be put forward as the lead role, shots of him from behind as actually some you know somebody that works in the second unit with their hood up so it looks like bruce willis from behind but he's probably only on set for a couple of days there was something i saw recently that was a bruce willis film and it's you know falls into your geezer teasers category and it's really bad the the angles of the, the they use for the camera cut off his head a lot because you know it's not bruce willis it's his body double or a body double and then there's a few scenes where he's talking to talking to somebody and you've got the close-ups of his face and they're all there. But a lot of the time it's the back of his head or his head's been cut off or it's an action shot so you can't really quite see what's going on. Um, but they've got Bruce Willis in as the, as the lead character. And it's a shame because I feel he's a guy who's not well. His decline is now quite public. Very, You know, you, you made a wee joke about it last week. But he's been... His name was exploited by his agents and various other people. And I could be wrong when I say that, but it feels to me that he's done a lot of projects that haven't really helped his career. If anything, it's probably just kind of like diluted his, his, his brand a lot. And now he's you know retired from filmmaking. It's a shame because there's a guy who did a lot of really great projects. You know, I've always been known as John McClane from Die Hard. But the end of his career, was, it's just lots of crappy films. Well, yeah, these people did him dirty, but if he was aware of the deterioration that was going on, it would make sense for him to just... The easiest project 
that he could do at the time for the highest price because he he must have known that he was going to be retiring soon because of his mental state. So just get as much money as you can to put into the retirement bank so that you can retire in peace. I mean, I don't know how I would ever manage on a net worth of $250 million. It'd be a shame, though, to get the opportunity to really work with somebody you really admire and to, for it to be a really sour relationship. You know, cause that would just be horrible because then you know, all the things, you know, all the things you've got that you've admired this person for, you suddenly would be better about it and so we just still have the same respect. But, yeah. Well, there was a there was a famous story uh, from Dennis Hopper, who when he was cast as the photographer, the journalist, I, f- I forget which it was, in Apocalypse Now, the only demand that he had from Francis Ford Coppola was, I just want at least one line with Marlon Brando. Just, just give me a line with Brando. And Marlon Brando hated him, so much so that they couldn't be on set at the same time and they had to cut and edit their scene together um, separately. So that must have been quite uh, hard to work with not only one of your heroes, but someone who's probably uh, one, of, one of the biggest names in the acting community in history, not just, not just back then, probably in history, known as being one of the elite actors that you couldn't wait to work with and they wanted nothing to do with you. What, what was the story there? Did they say why I didn't like him? From from what I believe, Marlon Brando was invited to a dinner with Dennis Hopper and Francis Ford Coppola. And Dennis Hopper had a book written by, I think, a, a, it was a book or a diary um, from a real-life person who had the same rank or responsibility as the character that Marlon Brando was playing. Right. So it was his intention to give Marlon Brando the book at the dinner uh-huh. as a sort of, you know welcoming gift yeah but when francis ford coppola found out at this dinner that marlon brando hadn't actually read the book that apocalypse now was based off of not the book that dennis hopper was going to give him the book that apocalypse now is based off of i believe dennis hopper said to marlon brando i bet you haven't read the book and before he could say which book he was on about marlon brando stood up and started shouting and cursing believing that he was being attacked by both of them and since then didn't have a very good relationship with Dennis Hopper. So all over a misunderstanding. The greatest opportunity or one of your dreams in acting ruined because of a misunderstanding. Yeah. And you would have thought that over time they, they could have rectified that, but I guess they didn't. And now they're both, you know, not with us. So what are you going to do? People can be very petty though, especially folk that have a certain amount of star power. They can get quite a fragile ego. Well, that's an interesting point, though. I think the movie star doesn't really exist anymore. Um, again, from, from our perspective, we still look at the guys we grew up watching as probably movie stars, but I don't believe there's anyone really presently that's making the same waves that the guys we grew up watching did. The film industry doesn't seem to be as prestigious. Prestigious? The film in- prestigious, yeah. The film industry isn't as prestigious as it once was. I mean, even if you go back to the you know the golden age of cinema, and you had all these big stars, and they weren't everything, you know, and you know, right through, they'll probably, you know, the digital age really became a main thing, and now you've got streaming services taking over, making their own you know Netflix originals and you know Amazon Prime Studios and all these things, and stuff's getting churned out so quick. You're you're not getting the cinema releases you just used to get. Movie stars are appearing in five or six films in a year, 
and some of them, you know they're not always of the best quality sometimes they're just they're okay stories they're pretty generic but they're getting turned out pretty quick because they're popular genres and people will suck up the material so when you say marlon brando and star power and then you know the, the these people that had run around with the whole i'm an actor and you know like that meant something i don't think that has the same appeal or the same strength as it might have done once upon a time i don't believe the the film star exists anymore not like it used to well no as celebrities of any capacity are overexposed these days um if they've not got an upcoming film they can there's nothing to stop a celebrity starting a youtube channel they've, they've done it you can find them where they still let themselves they let themselves known to their audiences and you see their thoughts and their opinions on social media. Every celebrity's on Instagram, every celebrity's on Twitter, every celebrity is just they're properly grinding and hawking themselves to be as exposed as possible. I don't know if it's to stay relevant or if they genuinely enjoy doing it, but that's a big reason that the star doesn't exist. I guess uh, Ricky Gervais said it best, if Isis had a streaming service they'd all be calling their agents. So we did the pilot last week, went okay, we didn't have the setup done quite how we'd wanted it to be. Right now, I'm sure your setup isn't exactly how you want it to be, I definitely know my setup isn't exactly how I want it to be. Um, the, the takeaways from you watching and editing the previous podcast, how would you want it to be better, what's the end goal, where would you ideally like it to go, because I have my ideas about where I'd want this to go if we consistently do it, I'm just wondering what yours are. Well, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, when we started doing this, it was, you know, we're only one weekend, and um, it just meant to be a bit of fun, really. And but, you know, I still want to do it properly. And one thing I would really, really like, and you know, it feels like I'm begging people to talk to us here, but is engagement from whoever watches the show. Give us feedback, talk to us, let us know what you think. Fire a question as questions as topics you want us to talk about. Um, I would love to be in a situation where we can have. Whether, whether it's live or not, is we have comments and YouTube, people talking to us on YouTube and Instagram and all the various things that allow us to be a, a show that we do for ourselves, but also for an audience who like to watch what we're doing. Um, it's not really a, it's a pretty vague answer, to be honest with you, but surely doors, so you know, we'll just wait and see what happens, I guess. I, I will respond to any comment any comment that gets put on whether it's um positive negative or one of those spam bots that posts the, like a link to some porn site I, I will like and respond to everything off the bat um i got a couple of positive bits of feedback from the pilot show and a couple of negative bits of feedback the negative i found more amusing than anything and that's that it, it seemed like it seemed like we moan a lot I don't know. I didn't think I was doing much moaning. I thought I was trying to be relatively positive. But hey, it's uh... this could be a spin for uh, I moan a lot. Maybe, maybe on a first impression, I came across as somewhat negative. I, I don't want to come across as someone negative. If I was so negative, I think not getting to where I was wanting to get to in the film industry after a few years, eventually I would have given up. But I always put myself back on the horse and try something new. But negative, maybe a little bit better. Maybe, maybe a venting out every now and then's healthy. It it can be easy to be bitter when you maybe have tried to do a lot of things and it hasn't quite worked out the way you'd liked it to. But I think ultimately, and I said this last week, part of the 
fun of or the enjoyment from the film process for me is seeing people enjoy the products you make but ultimately as well as a creative individual i like making content i like doing something like whether it's a short film planning something a friend of mine you talk, you mentioned this last week actually um a screenwriter friend of mine craig wallace he wasn't getting any of his scripts made so he started doing comics with the stuff and he's releasing one just now um it's, it's called cora and i would love to take it and turn it into a film so he's taking what you're saying about you know writing things and novelizations and he's making comic books out of them so he's doing that because nobody was you know his scripts weren't going anywhere they weren't getting made quick enough so he's instead of them sitting and doing nothing he's now making comics um i'm not getting the opportunity i would like to be shooting films so we're I'm looking at other things like the podcast and you know other things just to keep busy and keep doing things in the meantime i'm writing scripts and i'm uh, you know i'm fortunate enough to be in a position where i work in a place where filmmaking and even tv shows is something we're doing a lot of um so i am still getting to work in the, in the industry so it's great I think the moment you start becoming bitter and really negative about the whole situation, you probably want to have a look at, is it something you want to really do anymore? Because it might never change. You might never get the break you want to get. You might always just be doing the short films. And it's whether you enjoy the craft enough to want to keep doing what you enjoy, knowing it might never go out to a massive audience, or whether you are really in it to try and get fame and all these other things. And if that's the case maybe this isn't the right industry for you because there's probably millions of filmmakers out there and maybe only thousands will ever be successful, which I suppose is negative in and, in and of itself, but it's uh, comes comes back to what I was saying. Are you doing it for the love of, of just making stories and, and making films and enjoying what you're doing or are you trying to become famous from doing it? So many people will be doing it because they think it's a gateway to fame and it's the wrong reason to get into it. Uh, I, I think it's six times less likely than you are to win the lottery i think you've got a, a greater chance at winning the lottery than you do uh becoming su successful is different to being famous there's plenty of jobs in the film industry that you can get that will make a living it might not be a particularly healthy living but you have to be content you have to be content if that's where you end up because so many people won't even get the chance to have a job in the film industry let alone be famous it's a privilege, an absolute privilege, just to even have a job in the film industry. But um, I'm like you. I, I wanted to make films. I still want to make films, be that animated or live action. I'm content with making content. I'm just very content with making content. I don't care if it gets much engagement. That's great. I, I always feel very elated if it does get a reaction out of folk. I feel over the moon when I see that a video is performing well. Most of the time, you know, you're, you're going to stagnate in numbers and that's okay. It's the act of actually making something that if I'm not doing it, after a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you're not getting anything done, you really start to feel it. Like You feel lost. You feel like you're starting to lose your identity if you just fall back into the normal pedestrian life. I don't know about you. I get quite frustrated quite easily when we don't when it feels like i've got these ideas and i want to move forward with people and i wish there was a you know i could go off and shoot a film tomorrow and in a lot of ways people are like well what's stopping you is it well, all the obvious things money gear time everything else but 
I find that if I'm sitting there, and I think this is probably where having the conversations I've had with you the last little while, we can talk about the technical side of things and we can have a silly banter sometimes and we can have serious conversations. And I think that's been good. It's kept, it keeps the uh, the demons at bay, so to speak. Whereas if I was just sitting there always on my own and that I'm not able to express anything creative, I'd be quite annoyed. I'd be quite, as you say, lost probably. And I've done this for so long now, I don't know if there's anything else I could do anyway, but um, I still enjoy it. I, I've always had a, a pull towards storytelling in some form and whether you know i'm making films or whether even there's a point actually when i first got a pc when i was really young before he was even making films i was doing uh, making me animations with microsoft paint and i would like paint a frame i've been there paint a frame i've been paint there a frame and then i'd have little guys dancing around and walking about and a friend of mine years ago peter swan he uh did the same. He had a he, he would make a little animations called Pete and Stu. It was, it was like Beavis and Butthead type of stuff. And you know, I was always doing something. I always had a wee outlet to do and play with stuff. So if you know, animation, uh I guess that's why I like gaming to some extent. You've got some games that are just very story driven and those are um for me fun to what play because you're seeing the story unfold but you get to engage with that. There was a game called Heavy Rain and more recently one Great called game. Detroit. Great game. Um, where you're playing characters, but the, the the game outcome is very much determined by the way you play the game and respond to certain things, and that was interesting because that was almost like getting to play a film. So doing something that allows me to, to um, lean on that creativity, I think keeps keeps me going. But yeah, without without it, I'd feel quite lost. I think, and as you say, maybe my identity would be a bit. You know, lost somewhere. Like for example, when I worked in jobs that weren't fun related whatsoever, I I hated it. I just I knew I had bills to pay, and I was doing what I needed to do to to pay the bills, and I didn't like the job at all, and I just felt stifled and hated every second of it. So every opportunity I got to go and do a project, whether it be a short film or even just go shoot an interview or something, I would jump at the chance to do it. And sometimes at work, those opportunities would come up, and uh, I'd always do them on the off chance maybe I'd do a good job and. You know, before I knew it, I was you know that's what my job would be. We'd be doing these projects for this company, but it would never quite work out that way because they wouldn't give you uh, multiple projects. They give you one, and then you'd be back to you know answering the telephone or whatever you were doing. So I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult situation when I've done it for so long now that I don't know what I'd do without it, but I also don't know what I'd do instead of it. So creating content of some sort is something I'm probably always going to be trying to do and I think it's not the best answer but it's right now just as a spur of the moment it's an honest one 